There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, big interests take on big tech, how an unlikely alliance is forming to try and change the way Google, Facebook and others dominate the media market. Also on the programme, new research showing the divide between podcast audiences in the US and UK, Disney edging closer to completing its deal for Fox, Global and Bauer announcing big changes to commercial radio with a flurry of press releases and in the Media Quiz, it's the return of our favourite a game, Famous Last Words. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining us today is The Guardian's media editor, Jim Waterson. Hello, Jim. Hello. Welcome back to the show. It's been a year now since we met at The Guardian's Changing Media Summit and you'd basically just got the job then. You ambushed me and had the impression that I would know anything about media at that point. And a year later, you've you've returned to see if I've learned anything. So that's slightly terrifying. <laughs> I couldn't have put it better myself. What's the answer? <laughs> what have you I, learned? I, I've learned an awful lot. And we've <laughs> even recovered a few things along the way. Uh, what's the atmosphere like at The Guardian these days? Um, well, I really like it. And I'm very happy to be there. And we seem to be doing some stuff that I'm very proud of. So... I take that as a win, and we have the long-awaited announcement of our accounts coming up. We are uh, currently on track to break even, which will be a nice thing for the Guardian to have. It's a seriously significant thing, actually. Uh, it will be the you know um, touch wood, and we'll see what the final accounts say when they come out. But uh, that uh, we'll know within a month or so. And the most recent update was we're on track, and most of that, of course, thanks to reader contributions, which leads me nicely on to uh, Caroline Crampton, not because she's begging for money, uh, but because she writes mostly about podcasting, which relies on listener contributions largely too. Uh, And uh, Caroline Crampton, this is your media podcast debut. Uh, You write for the podcast industry newsletter Hot Pod. I do. Which, if you're not a subscriber, you, you really should be if you're interested in the business world of podcasting but you've just started a new one as well for the browser tell us about that that's right yeah so the browser is a very long-running like 10 years plus service where they recommend you the best articles on the internet every day five a day and honestly stuff that you would never ever find anywhere else and now we're about to start doing that for podcasting as well called the listener Okay, so it's a weekly email or a daily email? Daily email. So every day, every weekday, I don't know, on weekends, uh, you will get three podcasts sent to you with little blurbs written by me explaining why you should listen to them. And this is the result of my sort of, I don't even want to think about how many hours of podcasts I listen to a week, but hours and hours of listening, I've filtered out the best stuff. 
Have you done a story on this, Jim? Because it strikes me as a slightly underreported thing, this boom in paywalled newsletters or, uh, you know, email subscriptions. Because they, they, they are still going. It's really old technology now. I keep seeing more and more of them prop up and people really responding well to them. I'll be honest, there's a long list of things I need to cover, which uh, <laughs> this is somewhere it's somewhere in the middle on the stories that I swore I was going to do last week and haven't quite got around to yet. I'm really intrigued by anything that anyone can get people to pay for in terms of journalism at the moment. I mean, if there's any hope at all, uh, I mean, how do you have a sort of target of how many people you need to, to make it work? Well, so to be honest, we don't. We're just starting it and going for it because we're lucky in the position that the browser's existed for a decade and has over 10,000 people paying for it so we're you know it's not like a massively risky thing to you know spin out this new thing also we have been doing as part of the browser offering a weekly podcast newsletter and people love it like the open rate on it is really really good so we feel like the conditions are right to try it it strikes me as well that it sort of slightly plays into this trend of kind of digital detoxing and Mm. you know internet refuseniks that uh, you might get email now feels like slow media, doesn't it? It, it feels does. like something you can read at leisure. It's an old fashioned thing, weirdly now. Whereas like Twitter, you know, that's a place where everything's very fast and links are commented on very quickly. An email you can maybe read on your commute at your own pace. What's really interesting as well is that when I first got involved with the browser, I thought it was just it's for links. You know, people subscribe to it because they want to click on read the articles. And clearly for a minority of people, that is what they want. But actually, a vast number of people open and read the emails but never click a link. So they just like it, as you say, as a kind of a digest. They like to know what's out there. They like to keep up. But they don't necessarily actually want to read all of the interesting and esoteric things we're recommending for them. I'm just going to put you on the spot, Jim, but are there any that you rely on? Email well, I mean, in, I was just about to say, I mean, there's two that whenever they land in my inbox, it's like, right, stop this, I'm going to do it. One in the morning, the Politico uh, morning email playbook by Jack Blanchard, which has... Uh, was really great at first because news editors hadn't worked out that their reporters were reading it, so you could claim to be across all the stories of the day. <laughs> and now, annoyingly, all the news editors have learnt about it. But it's that's it's, totally how I use Hotpod, by the way, Caroline. If ever I'm asked to do podcast consultancy, oh, good to know. Yeah. There's, there's two. You know, I think I think Blisco only has. I think the last time I talked, some sort of twenty, thirty thousand people who are getting it. But within politics, media, uh, Westminster. It's the go-to thing now to get an idea of what's coming up in the day ahead. And they've built that from scratch in about two years now. And it's now such a part of the routine. It lands on the dot at 7 a.m. So uh, it's not arriving too late. So you basically can go in and do your own job off the back of it. And it really does, uh, it really does set the agenda. And I mean, equally, at the other end, uh, on a Thursday afternoon, the moment that Pop Bitch arrives, I'll still sit down and go, right, cup of tea time. Let's see what they've got this week. Because it turns out if you've got information, if you've got a little bit of insight that no one else has, then and you get used to it always being there, then you will open it. Is it worth it for traditional media companies to be investing in them, though, do you think, Caroline? Because I mean, I think about the spectator emails, for example, which I read. I am not a natural spectator reader. Mm. I'm never going to subscribe to the spectator. But I happen to like reading Fraser Nelson and Isabel Hardman in free internet form. Does that really help them? I think it does because, as you've just said it there, you don't engage with the spectator in any other form, but you do engage with the spectator, even if it doesn't feel quite like you do. And I think it works in the same way as, you know, podcasts or media appearances have always worked for established publications in that sense. Because if you like a particular personality, you're not into the whole product. It gives you an avenue to that one person. And that's still valuable. Okay, Uh, let's look at some of the big media news of the week. And there's been a few stories bubbling up recently looking at the power of big tech. 
ostensibly Google, Facebook and Apple, and what should be done about them. U.S. Senator and Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren kicked things off, arguing for a breakup of the big platforms to boost competition. Uh, Then Rupert Murdoch's News Corp weighed in with a written statement to an Australian committee looking into Google's practices in the ad market, and then most recently Spotify lodged a complaint against Apple and the way they charge subscription apps like Spotify's. Um, Jim, do you think the tide is turning against these digital giants? And, And what does that mean for the media sector? Well, the second part is a lot more complicated. The first part is the tide turning, yes. Um, we're at the sort of something must be done stage. Won't somebody think of the kids? Um, <laughs> everyone from left and right seems to be coming around to this idea that these companies are too powerful for various reasons. If you're on the right, it's culturally the fact that they are uh, allowing uh, material to be unfiltered and flying around the world. If you're on the left, it's that they're it, variously undermining democracies or being used by shadowy groups to get their ends. You can project almost anything onto them because all human life is there and therefore all of human life's foibles are present on their platforms. When you've got Elizabeth Warren talking about we need to break them up, uh, you had George Osborne in his lecture last week, his big Hugh Cudlip lecture, talking about the fact that he'd love to have been European uh, Competition Commissioner and have the chance to you know, have a go at these companies. Jeremy Corbyn also talking about, look, what can we do to you know, allow your data to be moved around more freely? So the sort of consensus that they're too big, the problem is no one's quite sure how to pull them apart now. And certainly in terms of what that means for journalism, and it's a very separate matter, but all of the things that have been said recently by Mark Zuckerberg about moving to a more private messaging-based version of Facebook sound pretty bad for anything that's about distributing links to public news sites. I suppose one of the answers for media companies, Caroline, might just be controlling more of uh, our consumers' data. I mean, uh, to look at the BBC, for example, that's sort of what BBC Sounds is about, isn't it? Partly, rather than having stuff on everyone else's platforms, let's own the app, let's own the data. There's power in that, and you don't have to be on Facebook to get people in. Yeah, they've been quite explicit about that, that they want to study their user or listener behaviour and the only way they can do that is inside their own proprietary app because third party podcast apps are never going to share that that information and it's kind of I think still an interesting question that I don't yet know the answer to is whether users want that they might buy the whole it helps us make the service better it helps us make the app better or they might think why should I give you part of myself just so you can essentially sell me more stuff and the problem is people like these services don't they ultimately there's this disconnect between the chattering classes saying oh isn't it terrible what Facebook have been up to and people then going on Facebook to see what their cousin's birthday party looked like I mean they're Mm -hmm. doing it and people still go to Google to get their information and even if you break the company up so that one part is Google News and one part is Google Ads, it's still the same brand. It's difficult for a challenger brand to come along, isn't it? Yeah, and, and all the regulation that's coming down the tracks is probably going to make it only harder to break them up because as soon as you start saying, well, if you want to run a social network, you're going to need at least 30,000 people looking at every distressing image and deciding whether or not it's awful, <laughs> um, then the only companies that are going to be able to afford to do that are the Facebooks and Googles. So you either have... Um, you know, and we saw this as news when it was a complete free for all on Facebook, and uh, anyone could work out how to make a piece go viral if you knew the right words to put in a headline. Then loads of new sites, whether it was BuzzFeed or you or just Connect- need the right words to go in a headline, and you'll never guess what they are. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, you know, if you knew if you knew how to game it, suddenly there was a crazy five year period from about 2013 to 18 where anyone could start a new news website and get a pretty big audience. 
Um, but as soon as you start to make things harder, as soon as you start to put quality controls on, then it becomes harder. And it's the same with the tech companies. As soon as you um, impose regulation on them, then no one else will be able to compete. So weirdly, I think I think the, the current big tech giants could benefit from the wave of regulation that's coming as long as they avoid being broken up. And what about in the ad market? Uh, Philip Hammond, the Chancellor, called for the Competition Commission to look into the digital ad market, currently worth £13 billion, Google and Facebook sharing most of that. What do you see actually playing out there if this momentum continues? That is a big unknown because it's quite hard to stop people choosing to spend their money with one of the most efficient ways of placing ads. Um, Every time someone tries to do it better... Uh, fundamentally where something like advertising you're just going to come back to are we selling more of this stuff by using this method or are we selling more of our stuff by using that method and for as long as Google and Facebook remain incredibly effective ways of getting people to buy stuff um, it's quite hard to just force people uh, to spend their ad dollars or ad pounds elsewhere so I don't really know I'm, I'm struggling to think how you do this other than maybe regulating Facebook and Google to force them to, you know, make it easier to run other services through their same back end or or spend your money across multiple sites from within Facebook and Google. But ultimately, unfortunately, at the moment, they've got the better products. That's the only way I can see of it working is that you have to force Google to share some of their secret algorithm source that makes it work. And essentially, I don't know what you'd even call it, but like state create off that competitors for them but that seems a completely bizarre thing to do uh, but yeah I don't understand how you It's a bit you can... of an admission of a failure isn't it? It it's is, kind of, we, yeah. we can't compete with you so can you just be nice and chuck a bit more money in our direction? Oh yeah or the other, the other option is and this is kind of what these big companies sort of have been doing on their own anyway is you know you tax them heavily and put that money towards something you, know, you give it all to the regulatory service or you know you sort of create a sort of feedback loop in the same way that big corporations of all kinds have always you know donated lots to very worthy charities. Well, be quite nice if they paid some tax at all in some cases but yeah yeah that'd be a start uh let's talk about podcasting shall we we've got caroline in the room so we might as well and big (laughs) news uh this week because edison have just published their annual look at the podcast industry this is a u.s survey isn't it caroline the reason i say good news is because i've been in this podcasting game for a while and these are the stats everyone always quotes Mm -hmm. edison's stats which say whatever it is, an eighth of people have listened to a podcast last month, then a sixth of people, then a fifth of people. (laughs) What's the latest? So, yeah, the latest is that uh, I think we're at 60, 70 percent of Americans now have heard of the term podcasting and roughly a quarter have listened to one in the last month. 32 percent. 32 percent. So we're we're kind of at a point where Though those are great figures that if you make a podcast in America or you make one that is listened to by Americans, you can take that figure to your advertisers and say, you know, you can get we're no longer a niche, small hobbyist industry. You know, now this is this is like putting an ad on the radio or, or putting an ad in the newspaper. We reach a huge number of people. Except, of course, you only really reach a huge number of people if the podcast is networked. You know, mm-hmm. if you're selling an ad or a sponsorship or whatever the thing is you're selling across a huge variety of podcasts if you're selling one it might be niche that might be worth more money but if it's a show about golf you know and you're advertising pepsi that's not enough is it you want pepsi to go across golf and football and rugby and cricket yeah so this has always been the thing people have said about podcasts that they are tremendously good at engagement whether that's you know engagement with editorial content or engagement with advertising content but 
it works best where you have that perfect matchup of sort of form and function almost. And that's also why in podcasting it's common and even desirable to have the host themselves part be part of the advert. Mm. You know, you've all heard, uh, you know, certain podcast hosts singing about Squarespace. That's because those listeners like hearing that and they're more likely to do it if they hear it from that voice rather than your sort of generic voiceover that you might hear in a sort of commercial radio spot. So that is, for me, the, the sort of tension in podcasting is that we've sort of slightly sold our souls already um, and only now are we seeing the figures to back it up. I do love the slightly world-weary tones that sometimes a podcast host mm-hmm. has when reading <laughs> out the, the script for whichever thing they've been asked to do on that particular day. Yeah, which which mattress do you like best, you know, <laughs> be honest. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, anecdotally, if you ask listeners which brands they've heard on podcasts, I think they will name, you know, your mm-hmm. Audibles, your Squarespaces, your Eva Mattresses and your Adam and Eves because they've heard those ads in the shows they love, read by the host they love. But if they're delivered in that weird tone then it doesn't really work yeah you've got brand awareness but it only podcasting advertising only really works doesn't it when it really sounds like a no bullshit honest the host loves this product thing that's why it works but if they're Mm -hmm. just tossing it off it doesn't anyway and that's really hard to sort of engineer out of nothing and it's really hard to scale as well because also even you know you might be really good at whatever specific thing your podcast does but some people are good at the ads and some people are not you know you get some hosts who just really can't sell it even when they do love the product so it's very difficult to sort of with such a personal interaction that you're trying to monetize it's really hard to sort of make blanket assumptions about that or scale that across the whole industry but that is now the game we're all in and from a business point of view jim uh the Data for the UK isn't comparable to the US. Uh, Podcast listening is 12% of the population in the previous week. That's versus 32% of Americans listening in the past month, so they're not quite comparable stats, but still it's less. Still a long way to go, and if you look at the US, those networks are there. Um, You know, your Gimlets, your Radiotopias and whatever. We we don't really have a comparable model in the UK, yet there's still a lot of indies. Um, I guess outfits like The Guardian making shows, but there's not necessarily this very ambitious thinking going on. Yeah, I mean, we, we're we're making a push with uh, today in focus, which is 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 I really like listening to that on my way in to work. But I also, that, that is again a, a sort of daily morning news. Yeah, exactly, a daily morning news briefing on uh, produced by the Guardian in house. Um, I always think one of the things is we don't because we don't have people sort of driving long distances in the same way to work. You don't have that sort of three hours to sort of fill every day. Uh, if, if for most of the UK, as you sort of go along a freeway like you might in the states. Um, and also the BBC is just so dominant here, isn't it? You've got that, the amount of money that they're putting into podcasts at the moment that sometimes when you talk to indie producers and they complain that trying to compete with the Beeb on stuff like this when they're able to, you know, chuck 10 million here or there at trying to make podcasts a success is quite hard to compete with and they don't need to have ads on that as well. And also often very easy to listen to, mm, you know, yeah. Radio 4 and 5 live speech programming, no ads, high quality yeah, do you think I must find a podcast on this subject? Not necessarily, but what's really interesting where that is changing is demographically. Is So I think for people roughly over about 35, that's absolutely how they think. Like, I have my Radio 4 shows I enjoy. Great, I can also now download them as podcasts as well. <laughs> and, that, and that's the extent of their desire to get involved in podcasting. But for people younger than that, the, some of the research, the radio figures and so on, show that they are looking elsewhere, whether that's Apple Music instead of Radio 1 or an independent podcast or a podcast part of a small production company here instead of whatever show on One Extra is being aimed at them. 
on the subject of Apple Music, actually, just triggered this thought off in my head as I'm sitting here. It's just a bit of a retro thought. Have you yet met anyone who listens to Beats? Well, no. that? It's been like three years now. Where's that money I, going? I've tried it once or twice. Me too. And it, and we've it, all tried it. it. If it, if it <laughs> we've all tried it, but, you, you know, you never want Didn't to go um, the, uh, you, it, It's a very strange thing. Occasionally I do it, and there's someone who makes me feel incredibly uncool talking about some amazing hot new record for some producer that I've never heard about. And... Um, I think the capacity since since Greg James came along, I've been listening to a bit more Radio One, and I've been quite liking it. It's not pretending to be as cool as it mm. once was, and it's actually quite a nice listen. Mm. And then I put on something uh, like you know the, the Apple Station, and then you just go, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I mean, I know I should have dressed up for tonight. I'm sorry. I, this isn't my place. I'm just going to go to the pub around the corner and, yeah. and feel a bit safer there. And you work near Hoxton. Like, yeah, you know, I, know, I, know, I, know, I know. You should feel fine. Uh, let's uh, talk about the BBC, actually. They're under investigation again, uh, this time by the Equality and Human Rights Commission, who are looking into suspected pay discrimination against its female employees. Caroline, this is another story that won't go away, is it? The BBC say they've changed a lot since they revamped their policies a couple of years ago. Uh, what do you think this research is going to find in 2019? I mean, it's fairly clear, isn't it, the BBC are now putting best efforts into this and they had a historic problem they'd mm-hmm. admit that much so what's worth looking into well i think i think the the sort of historic stuff the stuff that was really headline grabbing was the huge disparities you know hundreds of thousands of pounds more being paid to male presenters than females in some case you know we had the really high profile resignation of Carrie Gracie for that very reason she resigned as china editor because she found out how much less she was being paid by than the other sort of international bbc editors but i'm I would be very confident in saying that there will still be smaller scale problems. And also the thing with, and I don't know if this research will be able to get to this, but the thing with pay discrimination that I'm always really interested in is you get this kind of headline thing of you're being paid more than her. But what could she have done if she'd been paid more from the beginning? You know, there's a kind of structural what if stuff, Mm. which you can't expect a sort of minority report style fix for that or anything. But I'd be interested to know with research like this, you know, who left the BBC in their mid 30s because they just felt like they were never going to get paid what they were owed, you know? And actually there's the behind the scenes stuff as well. I mean, that would be more significant in a way, wouldn't it? If it was uncovered, there was a huge gender pay gap between male and female staff at the BBC who are producing programmes and Mm. working behind the scenes. Yeah, well, it's worth noting that the latest investigation is into historic issues. So it's going to look at between 2016 and when the BBC puts its uh, actual reforms that it has promised into place. So it's almost a retrospective inquiry. But crucially, the interesting thing is going to be we all heard about the stars who were getting paid 100 grand mm-hmm. or less more. The issue here is going to be what do you find on the people who are slaving away to make the programmes on a fraction of that who are finding that the person sitting next to them is not paid 100 grand more than them but 5 grand more than mm. them but that in their own way is a substantially bigger mm. sum. Yeah, as a percentage of salary I think that kind of thing would be really, really interesting because I think you might see some of the same percentages almost as the big on-air talent but just, you know, when you're being paid 30 grand instead of 300. And then you'd legitimately be able to say that is a gender issue. Yeah. Uh, because it, there are, like I said, there's these caveats, isn't there, with on-air talent. It's its own particular industry. Well, I don't know. I think they'll still, they'll, you know, if you want to find caveats, you'll find them. They'll still be like, yeah, well, you know, but you had maternity leave. You were away for a year. Or, you know, this person was able to fund this training in their spare time. Like, you know, there's always ways around it. So I think what would be quite nice if this kind of inquiry forces them to say, no, actually, we have a problem and this is what we're doing about it. 
Okay, let's talk about Disney and Fox uh, because it looks like that is finally going to come to its climax next week. Disney taking over most of Fox for over $70 million. It's expected to be announced on Tuesday, Jim. Uh, what does this mean for UK audiences? What are we actually going to see here? Well, I mean, the chunky the chunky deals with Sky have sort of already gone through. We've got... Uh, have gone, they? So do Comcast now own Comcast Sky? Because I'm confused Comcast about Comcast now owns Sky. Right, okay. um, and I, I'm desperately hoping that that's correct now. You've put me on the spot. <laughs> I'm, da- I'm suddenly doubting that the shareholder... But I know, I know it, it's definitely part of the Comcast family now. It, and, and, and the background for listeners who, who got completely lost in all of this is the fact that uh, after Rupert Murdoch did that lengthy, lengthy bid to take over all of Sky in the UK, 10 years of media reporting reporting on whether he'll be allowed to, whether or not he won't be allowed to. Uh, eventually, because Disney bought Fox anyway, they lost out in the bidding war with Comcast and all of that was slightly academic. So, uh, you know, that, at the UK end, that, that's the really, the really big thing. The interesting one is going to be what Disney does with the TV assets that it's buying on the entertainment side from Fox and what it does with that in terms of streaming, because Murdoch took the view that even Fox was going to struggle to compete in the new landscape coming around. And in the US, uh, if I'm right, this gives Disney a greater share of Hulu. They already had a share, but now they have a greater share because they're Fox's share too. But in the UK, there isn't a similar thing that they're getting by uh, by buying Fox, is there? Because Sky's a separate company. So streaming-wise, where do you get your Fox stuff in the UK? Well, they're going to have to do licensing deals, right? So they're going to have to license it with Netflix or Amazon or one of the services that you can get in the UK. And I guess which one they choose will be an interesting indication of, you know, what kind of market player they want to or be. Or Disney's own streaming service, which is coming in, down the tracks true, yeah. to add to the three or four or five or six streaming services that you're already paying for. Yeah. Uh, of which more later. And if you look at your Hollywood Reporter, they're saying the two companies are going to be run separately, Disney and Fox. But obviously, that still means, especially in the US, that means massive job losses, doesn't it? Well, it, 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 these things normally take about a decade to play out before eventually one brand name is dropped. Uh, an entire group of executives are unceremoniously pushed out the door and a few big payoffs down the line, then one ego will rise to the top. So it's always <laughs> nice to see these things play out. like a superhero franchise. There's a, there's a, there's a script that normally uh, normally plays out on these ones. But I can't imagine them getting rid of 20th Century Fox as a brand, surely. But can you imagine? Yeah, no, no I can't. Fox will stay. No, Fox will stay. You, surely, you've got to hear the theme we music. Need to, yeah. We need to do the theme tune. What's the? the what, how does it? Brum, 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 brum. No, da, okay. Da, 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 da. That one. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, we will be back with more media searchlight news after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Time for some media news in brief now. Jim and Caroline are still with me and the nation's largest commercial radio network, Global, announced late last month that they're going to be closing many local breakfast shows, uh, reducing their broadcast centres from 24 down to 14. um, And so Heart, Capital and Smooth are going to get national breakfast shows, Caroline, but uh, regional drive-time shows or sort of quasi-regional drive-time shows. Is that right? I think that's right, yeah. So this all has its root in an Ofcom ruling uh, about the requirements for the provision of local or regional radio, essentially. And Ofcom, after I think much lobbying by these big radio companies, um, lifted the requirement to have the breakfast show, the flagship show on the network, often the most listened show on the network, be made in the place where it's broadcast, essentially. And after that rule change, it it was always going to happen that these companies were going to look at how they could make savings, and that is closing a lot of these regional centres, uh, you know, making one show that goes out to lots of places instead of lots of shows that go out, and it also means a lot of job losses. Yeah, I mean, brutal for those people who worked producing all these regional breakfast shows around the country, Jim, but from a business point of view it's very difficult to see how Global wouldn't take this bait of being able to do this, run a syndicated show, probably from London, across a network, and compete with the BBC. I mean, I can't blame them for lobbying for the change and doing it. It completely makes sense from a business perspective. I think that having having grown up, I was originally from North Yorkshire, and having grown up with all of those local identity stations that you had, you'd, you'd get a bit of TFM coming down from Middlesbrough, you'd get Viking FM from Hull, you'd get Minster FM, and they all really felt like they were of their place. Mm. And the, you know, but equally, can I say that I'm regularly listening to local radio? Can I say that I'm listening to commercial radio a lot of the time? Uh, am I crying out for someone who's much more local to where I'm living? Uh, maybe not, and that's the problem. I, I, I get nostalgic. A lot of people get nostalgic for the idea that each city, each small town would have its two people who would get you up in the morning and do wacky jingles. Um but I, I, you know, I, it's whether or not you can financially make that work when there's so many national DAB stations, so many new launches to compete for people's listening time. And, and that was the argument, wasn't it, for the Ofcom rule change, was that the way people listen has changed. The internet, podcasting, streaming, essentially, has all changed how people listen to audio and that the regulations weren't keeping pace with people's consumption patterns. So, yeah, there is a lot of nostalgia to I it. still think it's grim, though, the idea that yeah. you, you tune in on the, on, the, you know, on the school run or on your way to work and rather than getting a bloke from down the road talking about that big thing that's come up in town and that sense of belonging to a community, you've got someone enthusiastic with a different accent from London uh, talking about stuff that you have absolutely no idea about. But the evidence seems to suggest that audiences don't care, sadly. I know, it's really grim. We, Ratings we, go up when as, they call it capital. As with, ev- as with everything, you can just never get audiences to do what they really should do. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose uh, you could argue, though, that the reason that audiences don't care is because the product that Global have delivered over the last decade has been very smooth, to use one of their brands. Uh, it's been very uh, slick. Um, 
but they've almost systematically sort of taken the localness out of it anyway, so you don't know what you're missing. I mean, if mm. you're now 20, you never heard any of those local you've, you've stations being it. reflected. It wasn't truly local anyway. Yeah, the part that um, I'm particularly worried about as well is actually the news coverage, because mm. those regional centres, they had, you know, hosts and engineers and stuff, but they also had journalists who went out and reported big stories in their areas. And so you are, and I think they are global, definitely are going to be staffing up their London newsroom more and they're like shifting the balance of that and so you are going to get you know a story in Penzance is going to be covered by somebody in London who's almost certainly not going to be able well, to, to go there. To be fair I think the story in Penzance would probably be covered by someone in well, Bristol. But you know yeah, what I mean. Sorry, like, I mean we're, talk, we're talking hundreds of miles. Yeah. But the, the, the off- I think it's, it, it reflects the ITV regions roughly. Yeah. So there's 11 or 12 or whatever. But it, but it does mean that I think the requirement is to have one, they can drop the local breakfast show if they have one locally distinctive story in every news mm-hmm. bulletin. So that's a, a pretty token effort to uh, to be able to opt out for pretty major cost. Okay, staying with radio and uh, fresh off the launch of classical music station Scala, Bauer have announced a new country radio station. Uh, either of you country fans? Pass. Pass. Okay, well then it's left to me because I am absolutely bang in the demographic for this for this station. I am the young country hits listener. Okay. Uh, but I'm also, I'm a Chris Country listener and in all of the press coverage for this new station, it's, it's called Country Hits. Um, they've all talked about it being the first national country radio station uh, in the UK. But Chris Country, which is basically run from this guy's Chris laptop in Salford, <laughs> um, is almost national. It's on a lot of DAB frequencies. And, and this is another one of the big media groups taking on one of the mm. small guys, basically. Country music is a great niche. But I wonder if it can really, uh, you know, survive two radio stations. I didn't actually write up that story, but I'm glad I didn't now that you'd have, you'd have had to have fact-checked me because I would have <laughs> just taken at face value the claim that it was the first national country music station. Well, it's going to have more coverage, you see, so they can claim it's the first national. Mm. But, yeah. So, yeah, is Chris Country going to be able to keep going in the face of that? I never heard of it, and now I really want to listen to it's it. It's a great station. It's a great yeah. station, and it is, it's literally a one-man operation, and it, it sounds great. Um, I suppose the distinction that they would make, the Bow would make, is that it's called Country Hits because they're playing the hits, mm-hmm. whereas Chris Country plays a, a broader... Re- they'll play a bit of Dolly Parton and a bit of Kenny and whatever, as well as the new stuff. I suppose it's good news for the radio industry, especially when you're seeing this close of local stations, to see new national brands popping up on DAB. I think Scala's a clever one. I thought that was a really clever idea for a launch that sort yeah. of basically... There's Radio 3 for the sort of person who sits there at the back of the uh, recital tut- tutting when it's like slightly out of line with what they expected. You've got Classic FM, which has a vibe of, you know, your, your granddad in the garden. And then you've basically got something that's sort of the six music centrist dad market yeah. <laughs> that, you know well I like a bit of it but I don't really want the fussy stuff and oh I do like the Harry Potter theme occasionally uh, and, and I've listened a bit it, it sort of works I think I think it could be a bit of a slow burn success if they stick with that one but the thing that actually it seems to me media commentators haven't said about both of these launches by Bauer Scala and Country Hits is that whatever spin they put it in the press release uh, they're, they're essentially stations aimed at upmarket white people aren't they they're, they're going for an affluent, advertiser-centric audience. That's why they exist. People want to sell to listeners like me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my parents are huge Classic FM fans. It's the only time I ever hear it. It's just on 24-7 in their house. And I'm always fascinated to hear the stuff that's advertised on Classic FM. It's a different kind of advertising you don't get on other stations. I never hear it. So it's PPI, it's constipation. (laughs) Uh, They have a lot of constipation adverts. And cars. Those yeah. are the products. Well, that's all you need for a good life, really. So uh. <laughs> It is, it's true. But also, I think probably for a good bank balance, I imagine those are all quite lucrative markets. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
streaming services. You alluded to this earlier, Jim, but I, I cut you short. Uh, the BBC and ITV <laughs> announcing a new joint venture called BritBox. Uh, this is Project Kangaroo Mark II, isn't it, for long-term listeners of the show? Project Kangaroo, which was the, the thing which back in the depths of time, um, the BBC, ITV and whatnot came together and said, look, we'd love to, iPlayer's taken off, other services have taken off, how about we all come together and make a free view for catch-up? And they were told, uh, no, no, that would be terribly unfair on the commercial sector, you'd, you'd, all, <laughs> you'd all band together. So Netflix came in, had a load of fun, and then uh, <laughs> 10 years later, BBC and ITV limp in a bit late with this archive service, which will be... Broadly speaking, everything uh, that's been around for about a year in one place uh, for presumably about five or six pounds a month with the odd new commission, but given the budget they've got, not an awful lot of new commissioning. I mean, the justification does make sense, though, doesn't it? In that, you know, I remember 20 years ago, uh, I bought Faulty Towers and I'm Alan Partridge on DVD and I'd sit and watch them with my dad. And that was the BBC making... I don't know, a couple of quid off each one of those, which they're not making when I'm watching it on Netflix. It makes sense, doesn't it, for the BBC and ITV to have, have a proprietary box set service that you pay for. But some people say, well, I've already paid my licence fee once, why would I pay again? Yeah, that's a good argument. And also, I mean, they have been... Because I've been wondering for a while, what is the digital equivalent of that, you know, buying the DVDs? And they do put some of it up on Apple. Like, you can buy these things as, like, mm. one-off downloads on Apple, but obviously not everyone wants to have all their videos live in the Apple ecosystem. But yeah, I just can't help feeling that it's too little too late. And also, I don't fully understand, maybe Jim can explain this to me, what happens to like stuff that's been off iPlayer, so it's like 30 days old, mm. but not yet like 12 months old? Well, the BBC is trying to allow get permission to put stuff on iPlayer for longer. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, personally, I find it constantly frustrating and baffling that by the time I think of watching some series that I've maybe even written it's about gone, or, once yeah. ago, or, 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 you know, oh, that documentary, that looks great. Oh, they've only got the second episode onwards and they've only got the sign language version. Great. Well, I mean, this, you know, I mean, that's that's great if you want to watch the sign language version. But personally, I'd just prefer to watch the, the main one. No, I'm sorry. You, you missed your chance. Um, and it's just very, very infuriating um, and just a really bad experience. And to be honest, if you try and explain to a teenager today who is used to Netflix, who in that terrifying way that uh, that it happens, Netflix has now been in the UK for six, six or seven years. So if you were 13 and you're now at university, you've grown up with all of your sort of semi-adult life knowing about a Netflix subscription. And if you then say that there's this thing that the BBC and it's like twice the price of Netflix and right now you're not using it as much, then cynically they don't necessarily get it. I've had this conversation. Oh, no, no, you, you get a range of services, <laughs> and they quite, can't quite get that it's not a straight subscription like Netflix. And it's further complicated, this idea, by the burgeoning success, actually, of the UK indie television market, isn't it? Yeah, um, there's a great piece by Mark Lawson, actually, in The Guardian, which said, if you look at, the, I think it was the top 25 most popular or best critically acclaimed shows in the Guardian's own list from last year, only one of them, Doctor Who, is owned wholly by the BBC and the rest are made by indies for the BBC or ITV or Channel 4. So how does rights work on that? Indies want to get their money too. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's, it's telling that things like uh, Bodyguard, uh, massive, I was over in New York and uh, everyone was watching Bodyguard. Oh, I love this new Netflix show. It's set in mm. Britain. It's like, oh, no, no, that was that was one of ours. It's like, oh, really? Oh, how sweet. You know, they, they don't really know where this stuff's coming from. And 
Um, you know, Which for, is Netflix very cleverly insisting on yeah. putting Netflix original on it. Well, this is why has everyone complied with that? Because I'm is, the same with American stuff. I don't know what channel it was on. This is why I'm so confused about what happened. I feel like the sweet spot for BritBox or whatever is the like ten months <laughs> after it goes off iPlayer, but like before it appears on Netflix. Well, it, I think theoretically you won't be seeing it on Netflix. Is basically right. It, that so has to be the you'll get a de- system, you'll get right? a sort of default as the Netflix rights expire, stuff will move back. So, for instance, uh, the first few series of Love Island are all on Netflix UK at the moment, uh, where I think they're doing quite well. But that will, when that deal runs out, expect to see them be exclusively available on BritBox for that time that you just want to watch 10 hours straight of people <laughs> in a villa. And the original commissions thing is really complicated as well, isn't it? Because you can see why ITV could make original commissions for BritBox. But the BBC can't spend licence fee payers' money making original content they have to pay to see, can they? Otherwise, it's the end of the licence fee. I just don't see them making much with the budget that they've got. I I mean, I wonder, I'm already slightly confused by how, you know, one of the biggest like BBC hits the last few months has been Killing Eve, actually made in commission by BBC America, shown in America first, then came to the BBC as its kind of second broadcast. What happens to that? Can BBC America make things and put them on BritBox? Yeah, it's a mess. That said... (laughs) Uh, if people who are commissioning original content for BritBox or indeed Scala Radio or Country Hits are interested, I am freelance <laughs> and available. Now, you will be thrilled to know there is just time for our media quiz. This week, it's entitled Famous Last Words. We've cobbled together three quotes from the past week that might come back to haunt the author. Your task is to name the speaker and then the story. Oh, uh, you dear. buzz in with your name. That groan you're doing now, Jim, would have been better timed a minute ago. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad we got to hear it. Um, it's best of three, so you buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So, Jim, you will say... Jim? And Caroline, you will say... Caroline. Right, let's go. Here's quote number one. If it subsequently transpired that a suspect was found guilty, it will be the case that there was no breach of Rule 5.1, as the news would indeed have been reported with due accuracy. What's the quote? Caroline. Caroline. Is this the stand-in radio reporter? Yes. Who everyone else had gone to a party or something, (laughs) and they were left alone. That's the one, yes. The, The quote was actually a spokesperson from Bauer after Ofcom censured the radio network for an inaccurate report by a news trainee. Jim, for a bonus point, if you want to compete with Caroline on this, do you know what the faux pas was? That uh, this- they, uh, they, they said someone had been arrested and talked about their murder or something like that. They they rather got ahead of themselves, I think. I think it's why you don't leave the intern in charge and go down the pub. Yeah, so it's the, it's the basic media law thing, isn't it? I mean, it's, it is lesson number one. <laughs> don't accuse someone of murder <laughs> don't accuse someone of murder. found guilty. <laughs> yeah. So they, the, he said, the man who murdered has been charged, <laughs> which obviously is not what you do. Mm-hmm. You say the man has now been accused of murder. I have to say, I made a similar mistake um, at my university student newspaper when they you know they set a kind of test for people who wanted to apply to be editor or whatever and uh, one it was exactly this 101 like edit this new story so that it is legally acceptable and I left in the like the man who did the rape will now appear in court <laughs> on this time yeah so uh, on the one hand you feel like okay that is rule number one and it is really important Ofcom take it seriously on the other hand as you said Carolyn that's true that's what happened the staff from Bauer were at their own internal awards ceremony right so he was the cover guy you do feel a bit sorry for him being left there. I mean, I feel a bit sorry for him, but don't do that. Just make someone not go to the party. Um, I also can't remember. I'm always amazed with these things as to who 
who calls them out and spots them and then thinks to report to Ofcom. Yeah. I've always assumed mm. there's just a rival sitting there waiting for them to slip up and then send in the report. Yeah. I once covered Steve Allen on LVC whilst he was at the Sony Awards, but I thought, well, I'm not going to get more Ofcom complaints than him, so I'm fine. <laughs> uh, right, here's quote number two. Even with Brexit, where a consistent and negative campaign by prominent newspapers provided a barrage against those of us arguing to stay in the EU, I think the press's influence was overstated. Buzzing with your name when you know the answer. <laughs> this definitely feels like something I should know. You actually alluded to it earlier. The press's influence was overstated regarding oh, Brexit. Jim, Jim. This, is George, this is George Osborne. I, was, is. I, was, I, I not only read it, but I was there and heard the words <laughs> and wrote a report on it. So uh, I really should know that one. That was him, um, that was him doing his Hugh Cudlip lecture where, among other things, he said, I want to, uh, I'd love to have been European Commissioner. I, uh, and he also, when I asked him about, um, are you a bit concerned about the Saudi investors who's taken a third stake in the Evening Standard, he mumbled something along the lines of, well, everyone has foreign owners now anyway, um, which wasn't quite the response that I was after. What was the feeling towards him in the room, actually? Because he has been in the job now for two years. He is a proper newspaper editor. A lot of people didn't think he would last that long. Um, I think he's still a bit of a curio in the industry. I think people still find it weird that he's the guy who's actually sending the pages off to the press every day. Is he? I'm still curious about that. Yeah, I think he's relatively hand on, hands okay. on based on what I've what I've heard. I mean, he, I know he's got six other jobs, but I mean, he's still he's still around and making a lot of the calls. I mean, I just assumed, and this is my own cynicism talking, that there was some really hardworking female deputy who was actually doing. <laughs> I mean, it there's all. definitely at least yeah. one of those. I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, bizarrely, even though you had to be really helped along to that answer, Jim. I think you're currently in the lead because you've got the bonus points. That's 2-1 to Jim. It's all to play for, Caroline. Here is quote number three. Momo challenge has caused severe trauma among pupils, school safety group says. Whose quote is that? Is it the Manchester Evening News? Say your name to buzz in. Caroline. And the answer? Is it from the Manchester Evening News? It is, yes, from the Manchester Evening News. It was the first story about Momo, which turned out to be fake news, but they still managed to get lots of hits for their news site. Uh, and that version is still up at the time of recording, which means there is no winner, which is a great <laughs> metaphor for the episode. Um, <laughs> that is it for the show for today. My thanks to Caroline Crampton and to Jim Waterson. The team will be back in two weeks' time with another episode of the Media Business Podcast, in which they'll be looking at the findings of Broadcast Magazine's Indie Survey 2019. Uh, that is a must for anyone working in the TV sector. Uh, and then I will be back with uh, an ordinary uh, roundtable media podcast today the week after that. You can help us keep the show on the road with more news analysis all year round by taking out a voluntary subscription. One of those again. It's very trendy these days, you know. Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate. Uh, you can catch up with previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I'm Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. And until next time, bye-bye.